Welcome to the Free Range Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Livermore. This episode is sponsored by the program on law, communities, and the environment at the University of Virginia School of Law. With me today is Ganesh Sitaraman, a law professor at Vanderbilt, and Shelley Welton, a law professor at the University of Pennsylvania. They are both experts in the areas of regulatory policy, among many other topics, and they, along with a couple of co-authors, have published a new casebook, Networks, Platforms, and Utilities, that we'll discuss today. Hi, Shelley and Ganesh. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. So, um, you know, part of what we want to talk about today is this wonderful new casebook that um, you and, and a couple of other folks have put together, Networks, Platforms, and Utilities, Law and Policy is the title. Um, and I'll, I'll admit it's not, for me, a, a typical podcast topic, a casebook, but this is really an, an unusually important and interesting example of the, of the casebook genre. So um, I think we can have a really interesting and I expect a really interesting conversation um, uh, to do to discuss, but maybe just to situate us in the, and maybe especially for the non-lawyers in the audience, we can explain a little bit about what a casebook is and how they kind of broadly fit into the, into the law school curriculum. So, you know, if you're just explaining to someone on the street, what is a casebook? What, what, what would your answer be to that? Shelly, why don't you start us off? Sure. Um, so, I mean, casebooks are the academic bedrock of law school classes. And I will, I will say our casebook is a little different than maybe your average casebook. So maybe I'll just say a little bit about your average casebook and then say a little bit about how our approach might differ. But so a casebook, um, you know, you'd get a casebook for your corporations class and a different one for your criminal law class. And they're a collection of all of... Um, what some group of authors views as the seminal cases that you need to read to understand a field of law. And so they're typically heavily edited cases with maybe a little bit of explanatory text connecting them. But really the way that, that traditionally law has been taught is through a method that relies on these edited cases as source materials that you draw the major lessons from um, that a professor wants their students to take away from the class. So heavy on reading actual judicial opinions with a little bit of linking text. Um, Now, I will say our case book does have a lot of that kind of primary source material in the form of cases, but it's more historical than your average case book and does a lot more um, linking history and case law together for some reasons that maybe we can get into. Great, yeah, Good. Um, and 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 maybe just to again just to kind of situate the 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 project, um, you know, so there's so this kind of standard casebooks on contracts and torts and criminal law and the like, and um, and there's not a, a standard uh, set of casebooks on networks, platforms, and utilities, right? So, so what is what? What are those things, and like, how does that fit into, um, you know, how do they? How, how does that make sense as a as a topic for a casebook? Well, uh, you know, the the thing I would start with is just the networks, platforms, and utilities as a field. Uh, is something that was actually really important in both legal scholarship and education for a very, very long time. Um, you know, really the the 19th and most of the 20th century, uh, this was one of the import, most important classes in law school. 
Um, it went by different names at different times. So if you had taken this course in the late 19th or early 20th century, it might have been called the Law of Common Carriers or the Law of Public Service Corporations. Uh, in, in the early part of the 20th century, it would have been Public Utilities Law. Uh, after World War II, the name switched to being called Regulated Industries Law. Um, and then it ultimately kind of fell out of the legal curriculum legal scholarship as a coherent field as well. Um, what, what the field always included was studying areas that are not necessarily uh, ones that are going to be the most competitive. And these are areas that have a lot of public purpose attached to them. They often are monopolistic or oligopolistic. Um, they're infrastructural areas. And so the, the big sectors that we talk about when we talk about networks and platforms and utilities are transportation, communications, energy, um, money and finance, and, and tech. And we could talk a little bit about why those are the ones we include and don't. But, but as a basic overview, when we talk about networks, platforms, utilities law, that, that's what we're talking about. It's those, those sectors that are something like utility-like um, in our society, and that makes them different from goods that, that you might just buy at a convenience store or furniture or any of the other things that we think of in a market economy that are, that are less infrastructural. Yeah, great. And I think this is, a, as, as, you, as you note, um, you know, this is what makes this casebook really interesting is in a sense it's kind of resuscitating um, or it's making a claim about resuscitating, uh, you know, kind of an area of law, area of scholarship, a way of thinking about um, a, a thing about legal institutions. Um, you know, and, and so I think of this casebook as different from, you know, the kind of the run of the mill in that it's kind of more explicitly political in certain ways, not necessarily partisan political. Um, and there's a way in which all casebooks are political documents because they're, they're making arguments and they're discussing views about the law. But in a way, this casebook kind of needs to make the case for itself as well. Um, and um, and there's not really a, a contemporary uh, competitor, as you as you note, the the area has the area of law has kind of fallen out of favor in the law school curriculum. Um, so if I was going to uh, uh, kind of uh, encapsulate the political argument, the case for the casebook, in some sense, it's that we shouldn't be ashamed of utilities law, like we or you know the broadly the law that governs networks, platforms, and utilities. Um, that this is a a, an important area of law. It's a good area of law. It's one that we should study. It's one we should think about. And um, and so so yeah. I mean, is that is, is that a fair characterization of the case for the casebook? I I think that 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 starts to build the case for the casebook. And um, you're right that we we are not ashamed of this area of law. Um, I guess I would also maybe situate it a little bit in our political moment and in the history of what's happened, right? So as Ganesh talked about, the topic of regulated industries really fell away as a law school subject uh, as deregulation took hold in the actual economy in the 70s through the 90s and onward. And one of the reasons that I was really interested in, in being a part of this book is, well, two things really. One is that um, I think that there was a lot of scholarly attention paid to making the case for deregulation. And then these ideas took hold in the real world and, um, you know, did a lot of work and in some cases a lot of damage. And I don't think there was such interest in a scholarly project following up on deregulation. And so we now are, 
you know, 40 to 30 in some fields years out from that project. And so one of the things I was really interested in doing is just asking, how has it gone, right? We've, we've taken very different approaches to deregulating different sectors. Uh, I think we've seen widely varying results. And it felt like it was time to take stock. Uh, and which brings me to the other point, which is that it's not like these infrastructure industries went away because the case book went away or the topic went away or scholarly attention went away. And so, you know, each of these has been sort of muddling along at various stages of regulation or deregulation in ways where it feels like it it's not clear to me why we stopped paying attention to these industries as a field because the challenges have persisted. And indeed, we've gotten a lot of new industries where the challenges are really acute, right? So the last time that this casebook was written, um, we had the internet, but barely. And we certainly had nothing like the sort of dominant internet platforms that we see today. And so there's both, I think, a lot of work to do talking about what has happened in the sort of traditional infrastructure industries in ways that just have been neglected in, in the last several decades, and thinking about what should we do with the rise of this new set of industries that's presenting a lot of the same classic problems that plagued earlier, more traditional infrastructure industries. I would I would just add to that, you know, I think Shelley's got it exactly right. And I would just add it's 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 the new industries like tech, but it's also the old industries too that got deregulated. So if you think about, you know, pick your ripped from the headlines topic, it's flight cancellations and, you know, all the crisis issues in the airlines. It's the lack of access to broadband in rural areas. It's uh, railroad problems, right, which we saw um, recently in East Palestine, Ohio, which we saw last fall uh, with the labor issues, which we saw during the pandemic. It's maritime shipping issues, which we also saw uh, during the, the early part of the pandemic as a major issue. Um, it's bank crises that, you know, are, are ripped from the headlines week to week. Um, these are all areas that were regulated through these kinds of tools um, that then were deregulated. They're all areas where we have real problems today, and people want to know, how should we think about solving these problems? And I think part of our theory of the book is that, one, we should be willing to learn from the lessons of the past. How did people regulate them before? Uh, what worked and what didn't? Uh, what did deregulation do? What worked about that and what didn't? Um, and what can we do today based on more evidence and more evidence from more sectors? Uh, we shouldn't be just drawing lessons from one place uh, or another. Um, we should try to learn across these different sectors about the legal tools to get a better handle on what kinds of legal tools might work well to solve what kinds of problems under what kinds of conditions. Um, and so in that sense, you know, I think we think that this is really a set of tools also that have just fallen out of the policy imagination at a time when whether it's tech or whether it's you know more traditional uh, transportation or other infrastructural industries, we're really hungry for uh, answers to how to solve what are quite acute problems. Yeah, I mean it's 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 it's, it's completely true that as you, as you know, like just the, a lot of a lot of what we talk about these days are um, in the in the kind of popular political discourse are, you know, very traditional in a sense, uh, regulatory issues. I mean, talk about traditional, like problems with the railways. <laughs> uh, that's about as a traditional of a regulatory issue as, as one can imagine. Um, and I want to, I, I do want to get into the, the kind of the details of the toolkit and, 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 and the, and the broader principles that you, um, 
uh, you know, that you used to animate the book. But I just wanted to maybe just dwell for one more moment on this kind of intellectual history almost of of this project and and the kind of rise and fall of public utilities regulation as an academic subject. And and part of it is, you know, we've been talking about the law school curriculum and what courses get taught and taken by, by law students. But there's also, as you both have mentioned, scholarship as well. Um, and that's another interesting um, uh, just kind of phenomenon is that a lot of scholarly attention kind of drifted away from, from this area. Um, and I think that's, and there's an interesting story there. Um, and notwithstanding the fact that it, everyone, I think, in the last 30 years kind of recognized that this was an important area of the law in the sense of it had real world consequences. Cases get litigated, judges make decisions. Um, the Supreme Court issues decisions um, that are broadly in this area from time to time. So it was it's an active area of law, but it's one that scholars weren't um, weren't focused on. So I'm going to offer like the maybe the traditional case for why that might be, and I want to uh, elicit the 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 <laughs> the, um, uh, the response. So what I would would imagine uh, a traditional kind of res- you know justification for that lack of scholarly interest would be something like. Uh, this area of law is a mess. It's vestigial. It's based on outdated ideas. It's inelegant and slack, slapped together. It lacks core principles. Um, it's a cover for capture and special interest extraction. <laughs> um, at best, it's a necessary necessary evil in places where we can't, um, you know, for practical reasons, the market can't penetrate and we can't foster competition. Um, but it's it's kind of always the second best, and it's not fun to think about for that reason. So, anyway, if that if that's the traditional, um, you know, uh, 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 ding on this area of law, what would um, what would your what would your response be? I, I think that you're right that you could track the wane in scholarly interest to a lot of the big attacks on public utility law and even just sort of government administration more generally that came out of the law and economics movement and a lot of public choice scholarship that made government not just seem like unsexy, which it kind of always was, but like really the problem itself. Um, and so you saw this turn to markets. Um, and, you know, when I think about something like how this happened in electricity, um, once you turned to markets in electricity, you had very sort of particular discrete problems of how you make a market for this good that's pretty strange to treat as your average commodity through the markets. And so I think a couple things happened. One, scholars were really disenchanted about writing about the field as a whole uh, because it had been so denigrated and so like sort of, sort of thoroughly decimated both in the academic literature and then as a political project. And then second, I think people got quite caught up in the details of how particular fields worked. So you really started to see a lot of energy law scholarship emerge during this time uh, to think about how do you design a good electricity market? What does it look like? How does it function? But without connecting the dots across fields. And I wonder if there's a way when we sort of um, took down commissions and this idea that we have agencies playing a robust role, that we also sort of scattered scholarly interest into discrete topics without making these big picture connections. Um, I think that's part of the story. And I'm sure Ganesh has more to add. 
Yeah, so, uh, you know, I, I think you um, had a really great encapsulation of what the critique of the field is. And, and I would want to zoom out in, in, in two ways. So the first thing I would say is the critique that, that you offered is a really great um, distillation of a certain ideological mood that I think was quite dominant over the last 40 years, but is coming to an end now, um, and really was exceptional in American history. I mean, you know, the field of NPU law, regardless of the name that that uh, that you want to call it in, in history, um, a lot of the principles and tools that we're talking about go back hundreds of years. They go back to the founding of the country. Um, and if you're looking at laws of common carriage and some of the particular, uh, some of the particular uh, detailed laws and, and practices we're talking about in the book as well, um, they really go back to English statutes and English common law all the way back to the 13th century. So you know, on, on one level, you could say. Um, there was enthusiasm for NPU tools and law from the 13th century until about the 1960s and the 70s. And, and then there was this short period of time for the last 50 years where people were quite uh, skeptical and had all the critiques that you, that you offered. Um, and so I think if you think about this in the intellectual history, you know, there was a lot of enthusiasm for thinking about these tools as ways to solve problems in the 19th century. It's why we got to the Interstate Commerce Commission and regulation across a whole bunch of these sectors um, that were then improved upon, that people mobilized around, that people built uh, uh, movements to to get passage of these new statutes, um, and that really you know crested uh, in the Progressive and New Deal eras in the first part of the 20th century. Um, and so I think there was a very different view about all of these things then. Um, then we have, as as uh, as as um, you and I suspect many of your listeners know, uh, this kind of move that a lot of people associate with the Chicago School, with law and economics, with neoliberal ideas, um, to move, as Shelley said, towards more of a market-based approach to things uh, and to disfavor both thinking about government and thinking about regulation. Now, some of this was partly because of the Cold War and the stark questions of capitalism versus communism. Some of it was um, a backlash to the New Deal. You know, there's a whole set of intellectual history and historical reasons why this emerged when it did. Um, but I think what happened was we ended up in a period where thinking about how to do things as a public uh, was quite disfavored. Um, and that's what leads to the approach that, that, that um, you know, the critique that you offered. Um, so I think one is we need to put that in historical context. Uh, two is, you know, it's it's quite shocking, each of the elements, I think, of the critique that you noted, because really, in some ways, the critique is almost totally backwards, as we as we talk about in the book, you know, as as compared to being a second best or something that's really, you know, not an ideal uh, kind of form of regulation. You know, one thing we talk about in the book is, you know, why should we have NPU law? And and some of the purposes of it include we need law to actually build these kinds of systems at scale. Uh, we want continuity of service and reliability of these systems. We want to have a country in which we have um, uh, access to a lot of these uh, infrastructural resources and in which we want to promote commerce and industrial development. And, you know, if you don't have electricity, you know, just to go back to uh, Shelley's example, um, how are you going to be engaged in commerce? How are you going to be engaged in communications? How are you going to be engaged in any part of national um, or international or even really local life uh, these days? 
Um, and that's a really essential, proactive, productive, positive vision for the world that you might have. Um, and if electricity seems too antiquated in 1930s, you know, ask the question today about broadband. I mean, if you live in an area of the country that doesn't have broadband, or if you're just driving through a rural area and you don't have broadband, um, that's really frustrating. Uh, you know, having a positive vision for how do we get there, you know, regulation in these areas was part of that story um, in, in history. Uh, so I think there's a real positive part. Second, you know, what you mentioned, the kind of elegance versus inelegance, um, that's also a quite shocking, I think, uh, statement when you study some of this stuff. What's really surprising, I think, one of the surprising things I think when we went through and, and we're doing each of the sectors here is how elegant the statutory systems were and how they actually were largely focused on creating structural rules that were simple, easily administrable, and didn't require a lot of super complicated compliance and details in order to figure out as a member of industry what to do, or a lot of very, very complicated, tailored behavioral regulations about what's allowed or not allowed. And once you have deregulation in a lot of these areas, what we end up with are building you know, regulatory systems trying to solve the same problems, but that require hundreds of more pages of both laws and regulations in order to get at the same things, because now you're playing whack-a-mole on every possible different behavioral problem that some industry might be going into, as opposed to having a clearer, actually more elegant set of rules, even if sometimes a little over or under-inclusive. Um, and then the last point that I'll just make um, is on the question of capture. And, and, you know, one of the things uh, that really was a core part of what, um, you know, pushed people away from this mode of governance, both on the left and on the right, was the sense that industries were capturing government and getting the regulators to do their bidding. Um, and this is a real question for institutional design, for people who think about government, for people who think about how we should think about regulation and public policy just generally. Um, and you know, part of the, the assault on the field was not just the Chicago School critique about regulatory capture, but was Ralph Nader and people on the left also arguing that these uh, agencies were captured and were doing the work of, of industry over consumers. Um, so, so I certainly don't in any way want to diminish that, that level of critique, but at the same time, it's not really a solution to say we should have no form of law or governance at all because there might be a risk of capture. Um, because the absence of legal rules, the absence of having a regulatory system, means you have a whole bunch of other problems in the economy, uh, which might range from monopolistic enterprises, exploiting individuals, exploiting workers, increasing prices, um, curtailing innovation, uh, preventing downstream uh, positive economic activity. There are lots of problems that emerge. And so we have this challenge of, you know, there are bads on both sides. We need to figure out how do we actually govern these things. And there's always going to be trade-offs and we need to think about them, I think, creatively. But the, the main lesson I would say is we shouldn't throw out an entire set of legal tools and principles, an entire history of how they worked and how they didn't and when they worked and didn't uh, just because sometimes there might be capture in some of the areas. 
Yeah, great. And and so, um, and maybe just to kind of dig in a little bit about the, again, it's it's partially um, framing, but it kind of gets us into what are those tools and 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 what are those goals, um, kind of specifically. So, um, as you both note, there was a, a big kind of anti-regulatory movement that happens in the in the um, kind of '60s, comes to really fruition in the '70s, and obviously Ronald Reagan's election in 1980. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of broadly speaking, there was a couple of different um, buckets of, of regulatory um, approaches that were, um, you know, kind of were under fire. And you note this in the casebook. So one is um, uh, what's sometimes referred to as social regulation, which I think is a lot of people, again, walking around the street might think of as regulation. So environmental regulation, workplace safety, public health, that kind of stuff. And then there's the economic uh, what is sometimes referred to as economic regulation, which um, is what you're focused on um, in this casebook. And so maybe we could just, um, for, for purposes of just explanation, um, clarify, you know, so I teach environmental law, <laughs> um, which is kind of very classic social regulation. And an energy law course is um, a kind of very classic economic regulation. And I would say the goals of environmental law are things like, you know, protecting public health from external, you know, from the externalities associated with industrial production or managing human interactions with the environment. Energy law is, you know, just to take that as an example, has a different set of concerns um, along the lines that, that you're both mentioning, continuity of service, um, expanding access, um, there's concerns about how, you know, monopoly regulated monopolies are acting vis-a-vis -vis consumers. So, so how do you, um, draw this distinction between the kind of economic regulation, which is what you're focused on in this case, but versus the social regulation, um, you know, that we might think of with under the clean air act. Shelly, maybe you could just start us off there since I, I'm giving an energy example, <laughs> uh, which is kind of naturally, uh, tease you up. Yeah, fair enough. Um, so, uh I will say for starters, I don't love the categories of social regulation versus economic regulation. And we use them in the book because I think a lot of people find them useful shorthands. Um, I think one of the points we want to make, though, is that economic regulation is social regulation in any in many ways. Like What we're trying to do when we do economic regulation is not just strictly economic in the way that somebody might traditionally think of the terms, but has all kinds of deep equity implications and democratic implications. So I don't want to I don't want to let the categories um, parse this too far. But generally speaking, I think that you're right that um, there are big differences between how we structure something like environmental law and something like energy law. And one of the big distinctions is that typically these kinds of social regulations like environmental laws apply across a wide range of industries and just kind of layer on top of whatever else they have going on a set of requirements for them to meet. When we're thinking about economic regulation, one of the, the moves that we try to make in the book is to suggest that there's a certain functional category of industries that need a special kind of regulation. So you often hear these called infrastructural industries. Um, we, we take the approach that there's not there's not a bright line set of industries that's in and out, but instead there's a set of characteristics that, that a certain group of industries have, and you can debate at the boundaries exactly which ones those are, but the ones that Ganesh started off by mentioning are kind of the classic core set, um, that this set of industries has special characteristics that make it quite difficult to manage without the kind of tools that we have 
long used to regulate them, right? So these tend to be industries, we suggest just a set of functional characteristics that these industries often exhibit that make them both foundational for commerce and a good life and quite hard to leave on their own. So it's things like having monopoly characteristics, right? So um, being uh, being the kind of industry where a larger scale makes you um, able to operate more cheaply. It's industries where having a big interconnected system makes it work a lot better, right? So things like if only a few people had a telephone, it wouldn't be that useful. The fact that it's a big network makes it much more useful. Um, it's industries where there's a big potential for um, competitors to race each other into the ground. Um, so I, I don't know that I should. I don't know that I should walk through all of the characteristics right now. But the the fundamental idea of economic regulation is that there's a core set of industries that are both important for building a strong economic system and building a strong democracy and promoting justice and equality that need a special set of regulations to make sure that they're serving the functions that the people want them to serve. Yeah, great. And and and, and maybe just to kind of put a fine um, point on the, the distinction, when we regulate the energy sector in the way that you're describing and through the tools that we're talking about, which we, I think we should just get right into the tools to make that somewhat more concrete, the goal is not um, uh, to re improve air quality, generally speaking, right? It's, it's, it's to improve the quality of the energy sector, kind of qua <laughs> the delivery of electricity or um, you know, kind of whatever its core, it's not really about managing the externalities of the industry. It's, it's about managing the industry itself as itself um, and putting aside kind of the, some whatever external effects they might have, which then again, kind of conceptually gets plunked over into this social regulation with, under the Clean Air Act, uh, for example. Um, even if, you know, obviously, yeah, we can, um, we might be able to um, problematize that distinction to some, to some extent. Yeah, I would say I think that's right. And I think I think one way to think about it for people who are new to thinking about this is it's in some ways um, about the structure of the market and the structure of industry. So it's a, it's an industrial organization and market structure question. So how many firms are there going to be in an industry, and where are they going to be located, and uh, what kinds of activities are going to, are they going to partake in? Um, at what prices and what kind of services are they going to offer, uh, and do they have to serve everyone? You know, these are not normally the questions we would ask of some company that's going to be making frisbees or uh, coffee mugs or sofas. Um, we wouldn't ask those questions uh, very often, um, but we do in these areas. And when we think about those, that's really what a lot of these tools are about: is how do we think about those market structure questions and. You know, I think Shelley is exactly right that there isn't a clean line between these things and what people call social regulation, because obviously, if you're thinking about regulating uh, externalities or, um, or or achieving social aims, when you do that, you're influencing the shape of the market and its structure and the operations of firms. And similarly, when you're shaping market structure operations and so on, uh, that will have huge impacts on a variety of social 
uh, goals, benefits, harms, uh, and externalities as well. So, so there's porous boundaries, of course, between the two. But, but I think that's one way to look at it is it's not as much about specific behaviors as it is about how do we think about the structure of this industry and uh, the basic rules for a firm that's going to operate in it. Great. Yeah. And, and, and again, maybe we can actually um, render this even more, um, more concrete. So in the, um, uh, one of the really interesting features of this case book is there's kind of a list of, you know, I mentioned earlier that one of the critiques of the field is that it lacks kind of governing principles or um, core, um, you know, motivating ideas. And, and so the, the case book, I think, addresses this critique um, by highlighting some of these cross-cutting um, uh, principles. And some of that is, is the toolkit, right? So things like rate setting is a, is a tool that is a regulatory tool that is used um, in, in a lot of these contexts. And of course, that's a, a good classic one that many, at least traditional uh, uh, economists would say, oh, we don't like setting prices. <laughs> um, that's, that's not a good thing for government to do. But, you know, I think the claim would be that in these special cases, actually, we need to do this for, for whatever reason. Um, but maybe even uh, to take something that's also kind of equally traditional as a, that you raise as a category, access and service rules, like who gets access, you know, um, the, the service providers have to provide access in, uh, in certain ways and so on. And this is something that a regulator might, um, might have something to say about. Um, and an example in the environmental context, um, where there is this kind of complex relationship between the, uh, the, uh, the kind of pure economic regulation and the social regulation would be um, a rule like... Um, a net metering for solar um, for solar panels. So this is basically the idea is um, in jurisdictions that have something like net metering, if you put solar panel on your house, the utility has to um, buy back um, or buy electricity from you at a kind of given price. And so, so that is a, I take that to be an access rule, though you can correct me if I'm wrong there. I would also take that to be a pretty traditional form of economic regulation. Um, that's relevant in your, you know, um, as a kind of a, you know, uh, NPU style regulation. And, but it also is clearly has social consequences. So, um, so maybe we could just unpack, you know, kind of how you all are thinking about this um, in, in that context of that specific rule about, about something like net metering. Sure. Maybe I should take a stab at net metering. Um, net metering is a, a really, uh, hot topic these days. And it's a very, very complicated one that I think you're right, gets at so many of the challenges that we're thinking about, right? So on its surface, I think net metering sounds great, right? Like we want everyone, we, we think it's a good thing if people want to put solar panels on their roof. It It is good for the system as a whole uh, because we want to make it cleaner. And so a lot of states have given very generous incentives to people to put these solar panels on their roof in the form of buying the electricity from these households at quite a generous rate. Now, if you step back and you think about electricity and access as a whole, and let's like just go a little historical for a minute. One of the big challenges with building out an electricity system was that it doesn't cost the same amount to serve every household, right? Like think about a really dense urban area where you just string 
a few wires and you've got a lot of people hooked up versus a very rural area where it takes a lot of transmission poles and distribution lines between houses, costs more money. Um, utilities traditionally have wanted very much to serve those dense areas where they can make a lot of money and not serve the rural areas. And so one of the NPU, to NPU tools that has evolved um, to force utilities essentially to take on reasonably sized service areas are these rules about providing universal service within your service territory and providing non-discrimination in rates. So you can't charge somebody more because it costs a little bit more to hook their house up. So, and there's a whole other story to be told about utilities not moving into rural areas and the need for cooperatives to serve those areas, but I will set that aside for now. So you have this electricity system that has traditionally been based on this idea that everyone in a service territory pays the same price, gets the same quality of service, and that's what we require of our utility. Net metering comes along um, and states start to let people hook up their systems and get these rates. And it's putting really interesting stressors on this concept of electricity as a networked good. So you see people putting on solar panels, getting paid a lot of money. Uh, that money has to come from somewhere because we have a rate base. And so the allegations raised have been that Typically, more affluent consumers put solar panels on their home, and because they're getting these very generous rates, uh, it's raising the prices for others in the system that often can't afford to or don't structurally have the ability to put solar panels on their homes. And so on the one hand, I think um, you know it's wonderful that we've come up with an innovative tool that has gotten a lot of uptake of rooftop solar. On the other hand, I think there are real access and justice questions that get raised when you deviate from this idea of everyone paying the same price for the same service. And ultimately, you know, I think the the potentially very interesting question for electricity law going forward is, are we going to see people start to put storage systems with their solar panels and disconnect from the grid? And that leaves the rest of the grid for a smaller base of people that are less affluent. And you could start to see how this really might squeeze the model. So I think this is a really nice example of a tension point where you can see the benefits of NPU law really working to keep a stable system going for everyone. And, and the ways in which you start to disrupt that, um, you really, you throw into to question both the stability and the fairness of the whole system. And, and, and I think that this example on the kind of the, the, the prospect that you raised at the end there of folks disconnecting also is, is, is really interesting. And there's, there, there is a, um, a tight relationship between the, the area of law that we've been talking about and um, concerns around competition, right? So, um, you know, a, a utility is, electricity utility is often a, a, a monopoly provider in a, in a local area. And so there are questions about, okay, you know, how's that monopoly gonna act? Are they, they're going to take advantage of their monopoly position, offer, you know, um, uh, you know uh, higher rates than would be ideal from a consumer's perspective or worse service or not provide service to some folks um, uh, because you know it's, it's just not um, they don't face competitive pressure maybe they would if they did face competitive pressure so maybe maybe Ganesh you could talk a little bit about the relationship in in this area of law that you're interested with with you know kind of antitrust or anti-competition like there's a lot of overlap but obviously there's um, there's quite a few um, uh, kind of unique in, 
areas that are um, distinct to the, to the different fields? Yeah, it's a great question, and you know, in, in some ways, my answer will will inevitably be um, oversimplified here, just because there's there's really a rich uh, set of discussions and debates over how to think about the balance between regulation and antitrust or competition law um, in each of these sectors and and across them. Uh, but but you know, to to simplify a little bit, I think there's a, a couple of ways that that we can uh, imagine the relationship. So one is that these two areas are at once substitutes and complements. Um, so you can imagine saying, you know, antitrust is the uh, and competition policy or law are the are the rules that we have for markets that are going to work well as competitive markets. We're going to have lots of players. We're going to have lots of competition. Uh, it's going to be fierce and ferocious, and it's like what you study in economics. Um, there's no barriers to entry, really, uh, and and there'll be there'll be good competition that'll work pretty well as long as we have some policing of of the boundaries of certain practices, and that's where antitrust laws come into play. Um, you could then say there's these other sectors, uh, the NPU sectors, in which we really shouldn't expect competition to discipline the market very well. Uh, that's because there are networks effect, there are network effects, there are economies of scale, there are uh, natural monopoly issues, high capital costs for investment, there's barriers to entry. Um, there's a range of other dynamics going on that will mean that the market's not going to provide the services that we want it to provide. And then on top of that, um, as we've talked about, there are a bunch of positive goods that as a society we want to achieve because of their positive uh, externalities or spillovers um, or just for other kind of social, political, uh, and economic reasons. Um, access, for example, as, as we just talked about on the electricity front. Um, and so for those reasons, uh, we're going to use a regulatory model instead of a competition model. So that's, that's I think, one, one very big picture way is that these two things are really two sides of uh, an anti-monopoly toolkit where you might say, we're really worried about big firms having and wielding too much power, both in the economy and in our society. And so on the one side of the coin, we're going to break them up on the other side of the coin, we're going to let them stay big, but we're going to regulate them and watch them very, very closely. Um, and so that's that's one way you could think about these things. I think one of the really interesting things that we found in doing the book is you really get this sharp sense of how important these industries have been to antitrust. Um, a lot of the really foundational cases in antitrust are actually NPU cases. Um, Standard Oil is a pipelines case. Uh, terminal Railroad is about a railroad terminal. Um, Philadelphia National Bank is a, a banking case. Uh, Trinco, um, the, Ver the Verizon versus Trinco telecom case. Um, you know, th throughout the book, we've got a lot of examples of places that you'd be studying these cases in an antitrust class. Um, but the sectors they're dealing with are NPU sectors, and a lot of the issues that are underlying um, you could have addressed through statutory regulation uh, in a way that NPU law traditionally has addressed them. I think another interesting thing that we 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 found throughout the book is that you regularly see courts in antitrust cases reinventing uh, NPU rules in the remedies in their cases to try to address uh, the the you know antitrust violations. Um, and so th there's a real way in which for some sectors these these two areas of law are just very closely related. Um, if you don't have regulation in them, you might be bringing an uh, antitrust case because there's a competition problem. 
Um, and the remedies you're going to get are going to look very similar to things you might have gotten if you were applying the NPU toolkit as a legislature or as a regulatory agency. It, just to add one point on top of what I think was a great explanation from Ganesh, one of the things that you see both when you trace some of these core NPU industries through their antitrust cases and through deregulation is you see this impulse to break up a lot of these industries and you see it fail. Like we've just had massive reconsolidations across a lot of the industries that one of the theories was let's just import competition and make the markets work. And a lot of these, I think because of some of their core facets that we talk about and have started to get into here, just aren't that well suited for competition as a remedy. And so I think here's where we really see NPU law as a critical complement in those situations where, for various structural reasons, competition doesn't seem to be an antidote to the challenges that are being faced. Yeah. So this is a, a kind of nice segue into, I think, another um, kind of interesting question in this area of law, which is, you know, what, what should the overall goal in some very, you know, very meta sense be of, you know, government decision makers in context like you're describing, right? Where either um, for social reasons or for physical <laughs> reasons having to do with just the nature of the good that's being delivered, um, you know, you're going to have a small number of, of actors and they're going to, um, if, if left to their um, to their own lights, you know, they're going to engage in practices that are not net socially beneficial, right? They're going to extract wealth for themselves and, they're, and, and it's not going to be um, ideal from a social perspective. And so one uh, question then is, okay, so now we're going to regulate, right? We're going to have someone who's in charge of this. They have the toolkit at their, at their disposal. So they can uh, say, set rates. They can require um, firms to offer their services on a non-discriminatory basis. They can require equal access. Um, uh, they can mandate the quality of the service. Um, things like ensuring that the grid's not going to fall apart, right? So, um, uh, so they can, you know, ha have regulations along those lines in the, in the electricity context. Um, and so one question uh, I would, again, just be curious about your take on this is I can imagine one uh, style of argument um, that would run something along the lines of, okay, this is the, gets us back into the second best uh, mindset. It's like, okay, you know, we're stuck with these monopolies and, um, you know, it doesn't make sense to break them up because they can't just, they, they're not as effective. They're not as good and they'll just reconsolidate it. It's just very inefficient. And so we're going to have them, we're going to regulate them. And so what we should do as regulators is um, generate the outcomes that would be generated to the extent that we can were the competition to operate in this market, right? We want the rates that we would get if there was competition. We want the quality of service that we would get if there was competition. And we want the distribution of costs and benefits to look the same as if there was. So we want to kind of replicate what would occur in a hypothetical competitive market. Um, so that's one way that one might approach the regulatory task. And then there's another, like, then there's everything else. <laughs> there's all the other uh, social values or considerations or whatever else that you might try to uh, accomplish as a regulator. And I'm curious, uh, both like your take on it, if the book itself has a take on this question, um, I suspect it's a little bit agnostic, um, but then just yet yeah, generally in the field, uh, what, are, what are some of the views about how to approach this task of uh, being a regulator in a, uh, an MPU context? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll start. Um, you know, to be honest, I'll, let me, I think, 
I don't really have a necessarily strong view about this, and so uh, maybe Shelley will have a, a, a more um, thought through approach. I think in the book, you know, we don't take a specific position on exactly the the economic comparison question that you said. I personally find it somewhat puzzling as a, an approach to think about these problems, though I'm, you know, very much open to be persuaded why I'm. Uh, wrong to be puzzled by it, but but the reason why I find it puzzling is, you know, once you dis- once you understand how the dynamics of an industry work in a way that shows that competition is not viable, what does it even mean to say we want to imagine a world in which there was competition in an area where we know there can't be competition? So, you know, I just think about you know examples where there's significant network effects or. To Shelley's uh, example, um, where there's you know l- lower cost to serving an urban area with electricity and, and high cost to serving a rural area, uh, what we know is that competition will mean the rural area doesn't get served, and there's a lot of competition for the urban areas. Um, I, I just don't know what it means to say that's the outcome then that we want to replicate through a regulated system. It just seems like a weird way of phrasing it to me. And, and I understand that's how people want to think about it um, from, an, from an economics perspective, but I've always found that a little bit puzzling. I, I think it's very hard to take political economy out of the, the, the system, and by that I mean just thinking about the broader um, dynamics and considerations that are not just economic but are also social, political, and, and otherwise in terms of our goals. And I think we should have a more holistic approach generally. Um, so that is, to the extent we have one in the book, that, that is the approach. We don't say there is a single goal that regulators should be trying to achieve when doing this. We talk about a range of uh, things that, that regulators um, uh, will be working to and a range of purposes that NPU law can serve, including you know, some of the ones I talked about earlier, promoting commerce, expanding access, uh, some are economic, curbing monopoly and oligopoly abuses, um, you know, subpar service quality, high prices, low output, uh, discrimination between uh, multiple different um, users who are similarly situated, uh, avoiding destructive competition. You know, I, I mean, these are all goals that we talk about. Um, and so I think if you're a regulator, you know, a key part of what's going on in any of these areas is understanding the dynamics of the industry, understanding the problems it faces, understanding what the tools are and what they're meant to do. Um, and so I think that's that's how I would think about it rather than a kind of uh, single approach. Because one of the things that I think is important about this area is that when you look back at these, at these statutes throughout our history, you could take the Communications Act, you could take the uh, Civil Aeronautics Act, um, uh, any of these areas – uh, they're really systems, and they're not a single regulatory provision uh, that's solving a single problem. There are some of those, but they're comprehensive statutes that cover a whole range of industrial dynamics, and they have interacting parts. And so there's really a system of how to think about governing this whole space that applies. And I think that's an important thing both for students to learn, and so one of the things I like about the class is we can teach governance as a system um, and interactive effects between different components, as opposed to just teaching, you know, one problem, one solution. Um, and I think that's in some ways a more realistic way about how our world actually works. It's a complex, dynamic system that we live in, um, where lots of changes to to one area will affect other areas. And 
and these are areas where the law has understood that and and tried to adapt to that. And I think that's that's the way I like to think about it, which is a, a bit more pluralistic. And I think um, system and maybe uh, uh, interactive than you know l- let's let's put aside these other things and let's try to replicate uh, a, a version of the economy that we know is not going to work in this area. But maybe Shelley has a different a different view, and I'm I'm, I'm like I said, well open to be persuaded that uh, there's a good way we could try to replicate competition in these in these areas. No, I I completely agree with you that I've long been baffled by this notion that we're trying to replicate competition in fields where we've just acknowledged that competition is going to be uh, utterly unfeasible. I do think there's an interesting conversation about. And and Mike, I think your question got at this really nicely about, okay, so we're in a world where we've acknowledged the competition won't work and you can't replicate something that you already acknowledge won't work. But what do we want to do with the the tools we have at hand? And I think you see this tension at work, right, in big questions like how much do we want to cross-subsidize? So um, just to come back to the electricity space, which I know the best, there has long been a conversation about should industrial users pay lower rates because they're doing good things that we want them to do at different times of day than residential consumers who, you know, need their power when they come home from work and when they get up in the morning and want it to be there at exactly that time. Um, so I do think there's big questions within rate design in particular over like, how do we want to trade off and value various uses against each other? How much do we want to make sure that we're paying a flat rate across different consumers that might actually have different cost bases. Um, the bigger point that, that I think maybe I'd like to make is just that I think one of the beauties of having a system of networks, platforms, and utilities law is that you can democratically determine the answers to a lot of these questions, right? They can morph over time. There can be discussion and deliberation. You can write the laws to shape your goals. And I think nowhere do we see this more than with climate change having become a pressing challenge and now putting a new set of requirements upon utilities regulators who are being asked, in addition to making the system reliable and affordable and delivering a fair return to utilities, to make it clean. And it's a goal we've imputed and they're working with it and they're making it um they're, they're struggling and figuring out how to make a system that can respond to this new goal. And I think that, in a way, is the beauty of this regulation, is that you can uh, have these democratic conversations about what you want these systems to accomplish and then figure out how you use the tools to do that. Yeah, great. Um, I mean, I, just to be clear with my question, I don't, I don't think the idea would be to... Uh, uh, um, for folks who hold this view, it wouldn't be that you would... Um, try to replicate competition in a context where you can't get competition it would be, how do you think about the goals that you're um, trying to achieve as a regulator, right? Um, and, you know, what are the, you know, what's your, what's, what are you trying to maximize, essentially? Um, but, um, but, you know, Shelley, the, the point that you raised there is that um, we can deliberate over those goals in, in this context, right? Is that, um, uh, you know, it's not something we have to decide once and forever and, and, and they can change over time and so on. So maybe we could, um, you know, kind of 
turn to probably the last set of issues that we'll be able to cover is is governance, right? So um, at the kind of towards the beginning of our conversation, we raised the um, the specter of of capture and special interest influence, and um, you know, and you know th- that may not be a sufficient reason um, given the the need for. Um, this style of regulation to um, you know to jettison the whole field. Um, nevertheless, though, there's uh, it, it raises a, a set of um, concerns that we that, that we might be able to try to think about how to address. I think one of the um, tricky uh, issues that um, economic regulation, you know, as we've been talking about it, has faced is that um, it tends to be pretty insider baseball. So if we talk about energy regulation, for example, it is so complicated. It's um, it, the, the decision-making is in kind of obscure fora. Um, it's difficult for, so we can have a, a, a democratic conversation, but it's a highly technical area um, that, um, and, and that may impede the ability of, of regular folks to participate. So, um, so yeah, I'm curious how, how you guys think about that. How do, how do we get the kind of robust um, uh, conversation and deliberation over the ends of regulation, the goals that we have in these sector, um, th- you know, the goals that we have that we might want to achieve in the sectors and through regulatory policy, given some of the inherent difficulties um, due to the technical nature of the fields, that they're, they're narrow, um, ambit, and, and the like. Well, let me start and just say, you know, first, I think we want to think a little bit about when we say they're technical, you know, how technical and why are they so technical? And so it's true. I think energy regulation is a technical and complicated field. Um, you know, for anybody who's thinking about deliberating in the public sphere, uh, securities regulation, you know, done by the SEC <laughs> is also a complicated and technical field. Uh, and um, and yet, you know, that that seems something that is workable and people work on that who are who are experts in that area and and there's discussions about it. So so on one level, you know, the law has lots of technicalities and there's lots of people who are involved in these things at different levels. Um and so I don't think that's special here. Uh you know, e- even even, you know, to your point about teaching environmental law, um once you get into the details of what standards are we talking about for pollution control, you know, it gets very acronym heavy and, uh, and, and technical there too. Um, and yet the environmental movement has existed with people deliberating, debating, mobilizing, pushing, uh, without necessarily needing to know all the detail of, you know, how to calculate the parts per million for, um, uh, various pollutants in the air or what the difference is between, uh, a, a, a MAC standard and some other standard. Um, uh, and honestly, it's been so long since I took environmental law. I'm not even sure if the max standard is a, is a real one or if it was, if, if I'm confusing that and it's a, a backed standard or something else, but that's precisely the point. Don't is worry. The there's both. There's both. There's both. That's what I thought. <laughs> I thought there were both. Great. So, but, but that's the point is, is that stuff is technical. And yet there are tons of people who are parts of organizations like the Sierra club or the sunrise movement or, 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 uh, conservation groups or other things who are interested in environmental questions, uh, and pollution control and, and, and are mobilized around it. And so I think the question that we should, we should think about is 
what are the things that we can deliberate on in this area? Um, and there are a lot of them, even if there are some technical pieces too. So, you know, one example that we have in the book um, is uh, airlines, which were regulated uh, as a public utility from the 1930s uh, until the 1970s. Um, haven't been uh, regulated in that way since, uh, after the big Airline Deregulation Act. And I think we see a lot of people now who are really frustrated when they fly. And they ask questions like, why do I have to you know, go through a fortress hub where one airline has 80% market share? Why are the prices so high? How come there's not as much competition? We only have four big airlines. Um, and they can also ask questions like, why is this airline leaving my city altogether? I mean, we've seen uh, dozens of cities across the country since the pandemic uh, lose service from one airline or all airlines altogether in terms of daily service. Um, and these aren't necessarily just the tiniest cities. These are, are reasonable sized uh, and pretty big cities like, you know, Toledo, Ohio, for example. Um, so, you know, th those are things where I think you could easily imagine people being um, angry and mobilized to say, hey, we need to do something different here uh, and we need to, to regulate these entities and we need to push for those rules. Now, Obviously, once we get into the details of the rules, it's probably going to be like an environmental law, something where you're going to need lawyers and economists and others who are working uh, on the technical parts. But, but I do think because these areas touch so many pieces of the foundations of our lives, um, a lot of them really are uh, things where we can, we can mobilize and where people can deliberate. I'll say one last part about this, which is even if there isn't kind of a consumer or user based mobilization, a lot of these areas are ones where the, the entities that are quite affected in a serious way are businesses. And sometimes small businesses, farmers. Um, so when you think about railroads, when you think about maritime shipping, you know, small business people and, and farmers, people who are trying to get goods and, and product out, um, they engage with the transportation system on freight, you know, quite extensively and, and understand how important it is for their businesses. And even if you or me, the end consumer, uh, doesn't see that stuff, they see it. And so there's also the possibility of movements of farmers, of small businesses, of, of others who interact with those systems, um, even if you or I as end users uh, tend not to. And I think those are folks who could also be mobilized to think about some of these areas as well. Yeah, I, I think that was a great answer. I don't have I don't have a lot to add. I mean, except to say a couple things. One, I agree the tension is real. There have been some very interesting efforts um, at the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission recently to explore how do we do robust participation in a sector that is quite technical. I think... Um, if anything, the move to markets has exacerbated the technicalities of this industry and the opacity of it in ways where uh, I think the cure was certainly worse than the disease in terms of figuring out how to intervene and participate in the electricity system as it exists now versus under a more robust form of regulation. The other thing I'll say is the most powerful public participation that I've ever seen in the energy system was a series of conversations that the New York Public Service Commission held with low-income ratepayers across New York State. They just went and had listening sessions and they asked people that were having real struggles paying their electricity bills to come in and tell their stories. And they did for hour after hour after hour. And um, I think it was um, 
incredibly powerful and moving to many of the commissioners that were there listening to these stories and ultimately pushed New York towards adopting uh, more of an income sensitive method of pricing electricity. And so, you know, it's not easy, but I also, I agree with Ganesh. These are places where these systems have really dramatic impacts on people's everyday lives and their ability to thrive. And so, um, it's, it's not a place, I think, that's any more disconnected or need be more disconnected than other areas of the economy. Great. All right. Well, um, I mean, it's all super fascinating stuff. Um, I, I appreciate we're kind of at the end of the hour here. So I appreciate you guys taking the time to, uh, to, to chat with me today. Um, it's, a, it's a super interesting um, intervention. Uh, you know, the sexiest case book that's come out in a while. <laughs> um, and so uh, it's generated a lot of buzz, a lot of conversation. And so congratulations on a great project. And um, yeah, again, thanks for the really interesting conversation. Thanks so much. And if you're okay with it, we may actually, you know, want to put on the blurb for the back of the book, the, the sexiest case book that's come out in a while. That's, I don't think any of us have heard that one before, but, uh, but that's a great endorsement. Yeah. So we appreciate it. You're welcome to it. Thanks so much for having us. <laughs> and listeners, if you enjoyed this episode, let us know. You can give us a like, a rating, subscribe to the podcast and follow us on social media. It'd be great to hear from you. Till next time.